Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. And if you would do us a favor, wherever you listen to this podcast, if you wouldn't mind stopping by, leaving a rating and review, please don't forget to subscribe if this is one of your first episodes listening to us. And today, I'm... I don't know. I'm kind of starstruck. Like this is Hollywood and, and all sorts of cool stuff happening today that we're joined by Dr. Paul Puri. He is not only a psychiatrist, but he's also a TV writer and he's the chief medical officer for Udify. And we're going to dive into all sorts of different things today because as, as a modern therapist and kind of doing the side gig thing everywhere, He's ended up in some pretty cool places. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. We always ask all our guests, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Yeah. I mean, it's such a, like just listing the things that you list, Kurt, it becomes like a, a hard to simplify, like what, who I am and what I'm putting out in the world. I guess I'm doing many things and I like to think that they're kind of complementary, but you know, the first like professional identity is as like a physician and then as a psychiatrist and then sort of as a therapist in my in my own way where I did a lot of training in therapy, which not a lot of psychiatrists do. And then along the way was doing, you know, writing and storytelling and which I think is very, very relevant to therapy and our own personal narratives and sort of what how we connect to other people. Along that way also I was I've, you know, in this in I think it's similar to um how we end up sort of developing modern approaches to therapy and thinking outside of the box in which we're trained or apprenticed, because I think a lot of people sort of study or learn in an apprenticeship model under another therapist or another person, so that you sort of start to see that whatever you learn in, whatever system you're learning in is not quite complete, and that you need to learn something more or think beyond that box. And so I was very interested in how to improve the mental health system. So I got on board with this startup, Udify, which is sort of trying to, I don't know, we call it a mental health community, but it offers a lot of services, including like matching with a teletherapist and other things. But I think ultimately we're trying to repair kind of the fabric of, this is a broad goal. I know. <laughs> It's like trying to repair the the holes in the fabric of like our society. It's like how we are disconnected, how we have trouble like finding you know the right kinds of support. It's you know I I view it as very lofty. I'm sure Robbie, the CEO, would say like we have a simple mission and it's this and <laughs> <laughs> a little broader. Anyway, it's a long rambling answer. 
I think for our long-term listeners, this is you know very dear to my heart as far as looking at not only the training and workforce issues that we have going into our field and also just kind of how that translates out into the, the broader community. You mentioned something about, you know, not a lot of psychiatrists end up doing kind of the therapy training. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that this is something where almost by necessity that we've kind of become this very fractionalized system of mental health professionals that just yeah. because psychiatrists are the ones that can prescribe the medications, they're the ones that's, that's all they end up doing in a lot of cases. Yeah, which is really sad to me because like, you know, if you go back historically, psychiatrists were the main ones doing therapy originally before we really had the the range of medications we have now and there's there's actually like a branch of sociology that just studies the history of psychiatry and mental health. It's a fascinating like little world. <laughs> but um the basically like this thing happened in the 80s where uh, and then the 90s where like reimbursement started to change and people realized they could get they get paid more to just do these brief med visits and that they weren't really getting paid for therapy the same amount and so like the economics drove it and then there was this decade of the brain in the 90s where like the national institutes of mental health said we're going to research and fund like research of the brain and its biology and it's like it became what I think of as like this reductionistic sort of approach. It's like we're brains and bodies and we lose the nature of like the mind and connection and human like relationships. And so like trainees for like 10, 15, almost 20 years didn't get any real therapy training. It was not in the training for psychiatrists. And that pendulum has started to switch back. So like it is mandated now that you have to get some therapy training but it's, you know, we have that leaves this whole generation of psychiatrists out in the world who don't understand it. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I think so often we end up kind of, you know, kind of these two pillars of, you know, medication and therapy. And it ends up really making our work so incomplete. And so the fact that you're kind of pulling that back together, and I saw that you also do hypnosis. I mean, like, there's just, there's, more of a a holistic take that you have on therapy that's really exciting. And so I think so many people don't see that because of the history that you're talking about. But I think too often therapists get really concerned when they hear, oh, here's a psychiatrist that does therapy. He's going to steal all of my clients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, do, I, I have a lot of therapist friends and colleagues who like we – it's a very interesting relationship. Like I will do some medication management only for them, or sometimes they'll just send someone over to me for a couple of hypnosis sessions as sort of like a supplement to the work that they're doing. And we just have to be in clear communication. So there's not triangulation or any issues like that, but I, but I get it. I mean, it's everybody, (laughs) you know, everybody, especially in private practice therapy, everybody is working really hard to build a business and, you know, the nature of someone that does what I do you know, like that's what they're saying themselves that someone who who could be doing what I do or does something feel, can feel like competition. And so I really try to, to carve out relationships where it's like, look, I'm, I'd never want to step on any toes. I want to like find a way that if I can be helpful for you, great. If not, we can just, you know, be friends and colleagues. And sometimes people just call me up to like discuss a case and, you know, I'm happy to, to be there as a, a support or resource. 
I want to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier about the apprenticeship model of training and mm. how that might not necessarily be serving us going into the 21st century or now that we're 20 years into it. But mm-hmm. how do you see this transition into the 21st century bettering training and with a lot of the new tools and technologies and understandings that we have now? You know, I think there's a very interesting opportunity here to sort of get to the nature of what makes therapy work, which there's been, there has been research on this. Um, and we're like using this and trying to, to draw from it and utify in some, what we're using like artificial intelligence algorithms to try and match someone to the right therapist. But I think the nature of, um, I know a lot of master's level therapists, for example, who train purely psychodynamically. And they didn't get exposed to any other approaches to that, or people who got a, who got trained exclusively in CBT, and they they got sort of shaken with the um, what Irving Yalom calls like the the evidence based boogeyman. It's like you know don't even look at other therapies unless it's clearly evidence based, and it's like the nature of what's researched and what isn't is is a little bit of like it skews the perspective on it because there's plenty of therapies that I think that are effective but they're under researched. And because they're just not funding for it. And, you know, the Beck Institute's done a great job of, of piling on a whole health, a wealth of resources um, into researching their approach. But I think that as things shift and the technology starts to grow, we can start to find the nature of things that actually make therapy effective. And I think it's going to be different than the manual for CBT. There's a wealth of, you know, research, for example, on what the therapeutic alliance is. And actually tracking when someone connects properly to the therapist as being like the main therapeutic factor. And so how can we how can we learn from that and actually help figure out what's helping that? For example, is there personality factors of the therapist or of the client that is, you know, facilitating that match? And can we improve on that? Can we tell somebody, you know, you're gonna fit better with this therapist because of whatever and whatever it might be style or personality or whatever it is? And so I think we, there's opportunities there to make the whole field more effective and make therapists feel more effective so that they don't, they're not only um, trying the one thing that they learned. It's that, um, I know I'm blathering at this moment. Um, <laughs> we will let you blather okay. on this point for multiple episodes. You're <laughs> speaking very much to the, the principles that we stand behind here. So. Yeah, the, so it's the, you know, it's the hammer nail analogy. It's like, yeah. you know, all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And it's, you know, psychiatrists are notorious for this with medications. And I think that many therapists are notorious and what gives a lot of therapy the bad reputation is people who try to do the same type of therapy for years when it's not being effective with somebody and they don't either because they don't have the skill or the insight or whatever it is to pivot to something else or we create an explanatory model like, oh, the person is too personality disordered to actually like benefit from anything other than what I'm doing. So I just need to hold the therapeutic frame for the next five years and hope that they benefit. I think that's so cool because I think when people start talking about automation and technology taking over, and I think there's some, I have, I would have to find it, but some, you know, therapist bot, right? That, you know, how are you feeling? It seems like you might be sad. You know, those kinds of things. I think people get really scared of the idea of algorithms or evidence-based practices or manualized treatments taking over. But to Mm -hmm. actually get to a place where an algorithm could help match based on the therapist's personality and the client's personality is is Mm -hmm. kind of exciting because I think 
all therapists know this, but I think they they undervalue it sometimes is that the relationship and the therapeutic alliance is the most important thing. But they don't think about, I think, especially, and, and I was kind of joking earlier about like, you're taking all our clients. I think it's that piece of, in truth, there's enough clients for everybody. Absolutely. Being able to understand that if a client doesn't match in the alliance with me, that that's not in their best interest to keep trying to make that work. And yeah. if I'm using the wrong nail or the wrong hammer or whatever, you know, like I need to think about, do I shift what I'm doing or do I move this client to someone who's better suited? And I think really getting into the idea of that matching is the most important thing is really interesting to me. It doesn't necessarily have to be either or. I think, you know, in the nature of like the hammer nail analogy is like sometimes we do just need a broader toolbox. And, you know, I've, I'm a very big fan of Milton Erickson, if you've heard of him. And he, you know, I've done a lot of training other stuff at the Erickson Institute. And my favorite quote of his was, there's no such thing as resistance, just an inflexible therapist. And so, wow. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> you know, okay, can we, can we learn how to be more flexible in terms of our approaches? And sometimes that flexibility might be, we need to pass this person on to somebody else and recognize that it's just not a good fit. And we think about, you know, it's, we're not viewing, like some people approach dating. It's like, oh, I just need to be really good at dating. And it's like, other people are like, look, it's either a fit or it isn't. I think it's probably somewhere in between. There's some skills to being able to date. I don't want to make the, I just did make the comparison between dating and therapy, but <laughs> we like, you know, it, there, I think there is something to draw from that. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I don't think you're that far off because it does just come back to that relationship and being able to work on relationships, whether it's within the professional boundaries of therapy or whether it's into the romantic field, that there's a lot of similarities between those. And it does take work on both people's parts to make those relationships work. Yeah, I think that the, the you know, all relationships require sort of attention. And so I think that that it's a, you know, that's, you know, another reason why supervision is good and getting like a range of supervisors, for example, is, you know, rather than just the one supervisor who might be beneficial, but, you know, getting a perspective outside of that single perspective, so you, you don't feel like you're just taking in dogma that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's really important. I remember a lot of people who were working in the agency that I was, you know, managing in and doing stuff and they would complain that they were having different supervisors because it was so confusing mm. to have so many different supervisors and I was like I get that it feels very warm and comfortable to have the same supervisor that you learn to do exactly what they do and it feels nice because then it becomes 
very, very like reassuring. But I had so many supervisors and I think it really helped me to realize that there are just so many different ways that we can practice and there's things that fit for me and things that don't. And so the fact that I have clients come in and tell me that they feel so different with me because therapy feels good. It feels like they're connected. It feels very different. I think really speaks to that because I identified who I was as a therapist, not mm. how to play a therapist on TV, right? Like how to be the person that, that, totally. that my supervisor told me to be. And I put on the therapist armor and I go and I do exactly that. I figured out who am I as a therapist? Totally. I think of that, that, that like really that speaks, you know, we don't know each other that well, but that speaks in my mind, Katie, to like your sort of astute, like personal development in terms of like, you know, Jung might call it like individuation of like you growing to be your own person. I always jump into like the, the digestion metaphor of like swallow the chicken and spit out the bones. And some people just try to swallow everything whole and it just gets stuck. And it's better to like taste things and explore and figure out what's the best fit for you. And you sort of, it's okay to take pieces from multiple sites and figure out what the best fit is with your personality and your style. So Katie brought up playing therapy on TV. So I'm going to use that as the now awkward segue into (laughs) you. I saw what she was doing. I thought I I set it up so well, Kurt. Why are you making it such an awkward segue? (laughs) So, you have awkwardness now. Can we just sit in the awkwardness? Just right sit with it. Everybody, oh, everybody just sit with it. We, oh, this feels mm. so good. Yeah. <laughs> so you have worked on a couple of shows, uh, Chicago Med and Instinct. Um, I've, I've unofficially consulted on a bunch of others, but it just, yeah, those are the ones I got credit for. Okay. So can there be good therapists on TV? Because I got to imagine for storylines, like good therapy doesn't make good stories. You know, we've really made an effort in Chicago Med to do that, largely because everyone is sort of prioritizing, sort of representing the field well, including Oliver Platt, who's playing like a psychiatrist and the head of psychiatry at this hospital. Um, And we even had like a, for a couple seasons, there was a trainee under him who was sort of learning the ropes. And, you know, there was, you know, there is challenge because you you have to have conflict to have drama for the most part. And so, like, in order to do that, you have to have people um, fighting over things and maybe people who are a little bit wrong or who are overstepping. And so it becomes a little challenging to do it consistently and make it interesting. I think a lot of times therapists are used as sort of a, call like an exposition device. It's just somewhere where someone can talk out their thoughts and get it out and, and get sort of story points landed. But to do, like, to represent a therapist well, I think is a great, is a great service when it can be done. And I think we've, we've made a real effort to do it. And I think there's been sort of a shift in the industry towards that, you know, for a long time, like therapists were the villains or they always had to sleep with their clients or like, you know, it was the stuff that was kind of ridiculous and represented us badly. So everybody thought we were either like, can't be trusted or going to take advantage like they expect like some type of a sexual relationship or like something. It's like, it's incredibly distorting to the field. Yeah. And I think it's something where even with, I think the efforts that you're talking about, and I appreciate your work in this, it's really disheartening because it furthers mental health stigma and it furthers this idea that, I don't even know, like that therapy is last resort because it's a dangerous place you know? And that's just, it's just awful. 
I, I don't have a question. That's just awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally agree. I think it's, um, you know, the, what I think has been interesting in the last five years, maybe a little bit longer is this, like the portrayals of mental illness have gotten much richer and like more complex. The therapists hit or miss in terms of like the representation of that. And so, because I think, you know, just watching someone solve their problems in a therapy session is not necessarily dramatic. We want to see them go out and do it in the world. So that's sort of the, the conceit to it. But I think that every so often you get sort of the, basically therapists become like the wise man character who weigh in on things and they become like a guide for the character on their journey. And I think that that's beneficial when it happens. And then all the other ones become for so many people who they're suffering, they're struggling with something and they have no personal experience with therapy. All they see is on what's on TV. There's a, it has a tremendous impact on the public health. And so I think about the, um, you know, I got this, I used to get this interview question. It's like, do, um, cause I, I used to do like these commentaries for like vulture and stuff about, about TV characters before I was actually writing. I was just uh, officially. And, um, people are like, do you, do, should people have an, a responsibility to portray, you know, mental health accurately on TV? And for a while I said, you know, it's entertainment. Does it, you know, do they have a response? But what I've come to is like the bigger, the microphone, the larger the public responsibility or social responsibility. And I think that all of TV and film has to recognize what their message is. Um, and I come to this, I'm going to s- shut up in a second. Um, there's this <laughs> quote that I heard. Um, I think it's from a comedian and I'm going to misquote him, but it was basically art is entertainment. Sorry. Entertainment is art without the social responsibility. And I thought that, you know, we so often just take things as entertainment and don't have to, we dismiss the idea that it has a social impact, but I think it does regardless. Yeah. I I think to me, the things that I've seen, and, and I think part of it is I double majored in theater and psychology when I was an undergrad. And so I, I had this kind of thought process around what is the responsibility? What is the purpose of being an actor? Why do I enjoy it? Why do I... What, what do I want to do with it? You know, I also had, you know, fancies that I was going to be a director or whatever. I, obviously, I went a different way. But I think to me, the things that I really held on to were the facts that when we look at what has been portrayed, you know, whether it's an African-American president or, you know, there's, there's more women getting roles and, and taking on different types of jobs and, and, you know, kind of actually trying to get to a place where we're portraying more people of color in, in a lot of different roles and not just as the villain, for example, or not just mm-hmm. as, you know, whatever, something that, that is very either stereotypical or demeaning or whatever, those types of things, mm-hmm. that we actually start to see social change. It gives people a concrete way to look at things. And yeah. so for me, the, there is a, an opportunity in art to help shift society. And I think that we devalue it when it just becomes entertainment, when it's just purient. It's just like, it's, it's this thing of like, oh my goodness, we have, you know, you know, we have this therapist that is sleeping with the client or we have a fatal attraction kind of woman that's being, you know, it's terrifying men. And, and I think it's something where it's, it's terrifying. It's, it's titillating, but it's not real life. And I think it does. I think I really appreciate that you're you're moving into that space too of of like how do we actually use 
these types of things for social change that actually help us become better people. A hundred percent. I think I, I'm not sure I have anything I can even add to that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, you're, you're, you, you hit it. It's the, the, the aspects of, of, um, of how we impact social change. And there's, you know, there's a very active conversation going on finally within the industry about like, what does representation within film and TV actually affect the culture? And, you know, it's, there's sort of two sides, which is, should we be one, should we at least be representing what exists in the world in terms of like, you know, racial and ethnic variety, if not, you know, just um, differences. And, you know, that I think that includes what the actual problems that people are going through. And then, you know, the other side is, should we be trying to be progressive and actually impacting society by what we represent in the stories we tell in terms of changing people's minds about things? And I think it's interesting because there's the other, the other side that I think the counterforces to that is this sort of mentality. It's like limiting beliefs in terms of other certain therapy systems where people say like, well, people, like viewers aren't really interested in that. Or viewers don't want, you know, it's like it came up with female protagonists for years. It's like viewers don't want to see a female protagonist. That's what executives thought. And people, writers bought into it and directors bought into it. And it just maintained a status quo for a while. And now, you know, you have, I think there was a study that came out that all of the biggest like earning films in the last year had female protagonists. It was just some ridiculous number. It's like, okay, the numbers are speaking for themselves finally. And people are paying attention. In some ways, kind of that hierarchy that you're talking about in in Hollywood is also kind of this hierarchy that we have been experiencing in mental health, as far as kind of these thought leaders pushing things out there and or researchers or whoever it is who have an idea to sell and continue to research and be able to make their name off of that then seeps its way into the education system. And we end up just kind of educating therapists in kind of the same way. And what you're talking about is kind of developing this critical mass at the writer, director, actor level to kind of be able to change this. Mm -hmm. Do you see that same opportunity in mental health? And where do you think that that kind of starts? I do, but I think it it has to start with the therapists becoming sort of critical and, and active learners in terms of like, we need to find better ways to discern out what actual types of therapy we should be learning and what we shouldn't. And we need sort of criteria or metrics to be able to judge that because so, because we are so influenced by relationships, we are influenced by what the people we're close to or the people we look up to recommend. And so we go kind of a whole hog into that. And so we need some other criteria to be able to judge what we should be accessing and learning. And I think that that's, I think the opportunity is there, but I think it's still really a work in progress to figure out what that criteria is. We're trying to do it at Udify with, by using, essentially, we're drawing from like a thousand different research studies to sort of try to discern what makes therapy effective in terms of the matching or otherwise, and so on and so on. And then using like some machine learning with that to be able to then help the matching process. But, you know, we're, this is like a different thing than doing a randomized clinical trial. And I think that the individual just, it requires a little bit of sort of, I don't know if ownership is the right word, but like sort of self-agency and saying like, I'm going to look beyond what's right in front of me and I, oh, and I need to assess what else is out there. Because the, the counterpoint to this is that as people are branding themselves, as people are working so hard to develop the private practice and diversifying, we end up with a lot of 
kind of noise, we end up with like, there's a thousand different kinds of therapy out there and they aren't, and it's harder to root for people to then discern what am I actually looking at and how to navigate so much, like so many choices. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I'm just thinking. <laughs> because I think that to me, in in looking at setting up a brand, that's part of how... I think therapists get their mind around having to do it is, is I need to express what it would be like to work with me. And that's unique because I'm a unique individual, but it can be, I think, very overwhelming in the marketplace because, or it just becomes who do I like on their website or who, Mm -hmm. whose videos do I enjoy watching or whatever it is. I think consumers could go completely the other way, but yeah, I think there's, there's something where there isn't really, unless Unless consumers start understanding what CBT is and EMDR, which they do right. to a certain extent, but do they know what DBT is? Well, you know, if they've been told, do they right. know what existential psychotherapy is? You know, right? And do you they know, know? Do they even know how to assess? Is that what I need or not? I yeah, think which it's the level of sophistication that we can't really expect from them. No, and I think that's part of what our jobs are, right? Like, like, and I don't know. And from what you're talking about, and I agree, I don't know that we're doing it that well because it's like, well, if I'm an existential psychotherapist, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> right, <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> and I want the client, so I'm going to do that thing. And so, mm-hmm. to me, it's definitely a very interesting thing to think about: is how do we really understand that we're individuals and we need to brand ourselves and do all those things, but we still need to be helping the consumer to make the choice because we're not going to be the right choice just because we're appealing doesn't necessarily mean that we're the right choice. Yeah. And so I think there's something I, I have this hypothesis that there's something in the sort of translation of that somewhere in the language translation kind of between what you're, because most people, like if you go to a psychology today profile, they're listing like, here's all the therapies I do. And they're sort of putting it out there in their yellow pages ad and we need something in sort of the translation between that to the language of the consumer, the client, and what they think they're looking for to be able to say, like, this is going to be a fit based on these aspects of what their therapy is. And as I said before, like personality or otherwise, to say, like, this might be a good fit for you. And so that it can, it can resonate with the client, potential client. And I think we have a responsibility, too, of educating the general population of evidence base and and what that actually means, because there's an article we'll link in the show notes, but about just kind of where the basis of evidence base comes from and how manipulated some of the control groups in these studies actually are. And that evidence base has become just kind of this marketing jargon to almost push some sort of things to where clients who don't necessarily need a evidence-based treatment are asking for a therapist to use that sort of treatment just because it's what what's evidence-based or it's what's considered a gold standard. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that there's, um, there, the, you know, people are not particularly sophisticated. And I, honestly, I think that that physicians and therapists are also not especially sophisticated at navigating data 
or evidence. And so understanding what the different levels of evidence are and that, you know, anecdote is not considered typically evidence. It's <laughs> like, you know, there's a, there's a joke of like the plural of anecdote is not data. And it's, you know, we have to, we have to go a little bit beyond this. Um, but I think that being able to educate people on, on what you need and what you don't need, therapy has a long evidence base to it. Psychodynamic therapy and psychoanalytic therapy actually has an evidence base to it. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily it's the right fit or it's the right fit for everybody, but getting beyond the idea that we should only do these things that everything else is unproven, like I think most of the sort of iterated therapies are drawing from evidence-based approaches and they're sort of rebranding. They're taking like an approach like, you know, from like a, like a, a shuttling or empty chair technique, or they're using, you know, some aspect of like internalized self objects or um, uh, inner child work. And then they're, you know, they're focusing on these things and these might come from more traditional schools. Um, but the fact that it is not, you know, newly studied is sort of missing the point. And I think that that's, you know, it's part of the problem that maybe we're all contributing to when we're trying to rebrand a new therapy is like, it's not going to be evidence-based, but people just, you're getting beyond the language of what the general consumer understands. So I'm looking at the time and I really am interested. I'm totally changing the subject, not even an awkward uh, transition, <laughs> just a total transition. The hard I left turn here. The hard left turn, because we we're running out of time and I want to pick your brain about this idea that as clinicians, we have something to offer in changing the social landscape. And part of that can be in writing, writing for TV, that kind of stuff. And so I'm really fascinated with how you did that, what, what recommendations you have for therapists if they want to kind of expand their voice beyond the one-to-one -one work in their office. Um, sorry, I also hear my daughter is, um, I don't know if you can hear her, hopefully not. <laughs> She's wailing in the background a little bit. You know, I think it's, it's really important. Like I actually, I think I, one of my first blog posts was essentially, should my therapist be blogging? Because we have this sort of idea that the therapist is supposed to stay in their contained two chair office and not go outside and not be a person and not have perspectives on things. And I think that that, you know, that is driven for by a psychoanalytic sort of ego psychology blank screen model of like, we shouldn't really be people and that doesn't really serve the clients to understand, to create real relationships. That's almost a tangent. To come back to your actual question, um, I think it's important that we do weigh in on things in terms of bringing higher levels of education to, to all kinds of things, in term, whether it's, you know, politicians with narcissism or it's <laughs> um, about, you know, the, the nature of repetition compulsion and how we repeat certain cycles in our life and people can start to understand that that's what they're doing. The nature of, you know, addiction or substance use disorders or whatever it is that we have some particular insight into, I view it as a little bit more of a, again, a public health responsibility to use that. Now, I, I temper that a little bit because I think that we also have a draw. There is a, there is a power dynamic in our roles in the world. And I think we have to be mindful of that, that we are not sort of weighing in unsolicited Meaning like when we, we can just go out there and be like, well, I'm a therapist and I'm going to, you know, I was with my, my newborn at a, um, at a restaurant recently and she was screaming, we were putting a pacifier in her mouth and the waiter weighed in that, you know, he's an EMT and that's blocking her airway. And I was like, okay, I didn't ask you. And 
<laughs> we have to the table so you can knock it off. But it, I think it's the the nature of like having expertise. It feels good to be able to help. And so I think we have to be mindful of not just going out and just like, you know, laying out our expertise everywhere, but trying to, you know, do it where sort of strategically where we, where it will actually benefit the world and making sure that if we get a signal like you're not, that's not wanted, that we back off. I think that that has to be a side. But beyond that, it becomes anywhere, I think that, you know, whether it's telling your own stories is appropriate. So like not to, not something that's necessarily over disclosing, you know, there's things that are like publicly available for me and I feel okay talking loosely about that with clients when they come in without the shift, the focus shifting on me. But it might be about, you know, being a talking head on a news channel and identifying, you know, there's something called the Goldwater rule, for example, which is for psychiatrists, we're not supposed to speak publicly about people that we haven't individually examined. But we can talk about general topics that we know about. We can help to educate people about concepts that there's misunderstanding about. And I think that that's really important to, to do. And, to you know, why do we have this education otherwise? Like, it's not just to build a business. Like, we should be helping the world. Mm-hmm. And not to, I think, fall into that fallacy of just because we may have an expertise or an idea in one area that expertise isn't transferable to other topics that we're not experts in. And really yeah. understanding where our scope of knowledge and our scope of interest really fall. Absolutely. So like as an easy example, you know, when I was transfer transitioning into writing professionally, like I was actually getting work for it, you know, what starts to come up is this interface between what's dramatic and what's real or what's realistic or accurate. And so trying to understand, you know, the other requirements in any other field might not be perfectly in line with your area. And so we all, I think it's similar to the idea in therapy of holding an idea lightly. If that's come up before, you present an idea and you hold it sort of lightly. Is when you're when you're interfacing in new areas that you're not familiar, is you know carry a, a, a degree of humility so that continuing to learn and grow while still confidence in your area. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Puri. He's a psychiatrist. He's a TV writer, a father, and such an amazing piece of wealth, uh, wealth of knowledge. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Very flattered. Uh, and he is going to be one of our Thought Bubble presenters at the Therapy Reimagined 2019 conference here in Universal City in the Los Angeles area, October 18th and 19th. And he's going to be dropping more knowledge bombs all over the place there. So <laughs> come out and get some Get some more Dr. Pori there. Uh, some, some knowledge shrapnel? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> exactly, yes. Wow, it sounds really, I'm like a dirty bomb now. <laughs> uh, but uh, you can find out more information about that at second.therapyreimaginedconference.com. And I mentioned that we'll leave some stuff in the show notes. You can find those at our website, mtsgpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Paul Pori. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist 
and use the promo code MODERNTHERAPISTS and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.